turn to Psalm 101 again. Then we're going to go to Genesis. Psalms 101 and verse 2. Now, we're studying the Christian home. The Christian home. I'm sure you realize that a Christian home is different than a typical natural worldly home. They have the same kind of features. They have a husband and a wife. They usually have children. They function. They do things. But there's a way that God wants things to be done. There's attitudes that God wants in both a man and a woman you don't see very much of today. That's why a home is most of the time just a place where two unhappy people live and try to get along, make ends meet. She goes her way, he goes his way, and they just do the best they can. And the kids that come out of that will act the same way when they grow up, and they'll produce the same thing in their children when they grow up. There's a Christian way of doing everything. We call it God's way. Christianity is living on God's terms. That's what it is. To be a Christian is to live like God shows you to live. Anything less is unacceptable. Now, we ought to be glad about that because we don't deserve to be here anyway. It was by God's good grace that he brought us here, that he saved us if we're saved, and that he's turned our lives around, give us a reason to live, and truly, as the song says, hope for tomorrow. It really is in there. And if you want it, you'll find it because he said, you seek, you search, and you'll find. And Psalm 101 and verse 2 concerning our text for the home, he said, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. That seems to be a little bit out of the range of most people. The word perfect. Another translation, not that I endorse them, but one translation says, I will be careful to walk in a blameless way. I will walk within my house with a blameless heart. You have to really want to do that. Only God can initiate that kind of an activity or that kind of a heart. To really want to live in a way that pleases God. Not just try to improve your life, do better, quit drinking, quit smoking. Not just quit doing things. Christianity is not a negative walk. It's a positive walk. You want to do what God gives you to do because you're really thankful to God. I mean, that's the difference that Christianity makes. and That's the way it's supposed to be. And he says, concerning my house, I will walk in a perfect way or a blameless way in my heart. The home, as I've already said, is the proving ground of all ministries and really characters. What you bring in this church tonight, what you brought here is what you are at home, families. Every family that came here tonight brought the character of that family to this church, to a body. Every church is like that because most churches consist of families, groups of families. And what we are at home is what we are here. Now, we can act differently here because we're only here for an hour or so or two or whatever. And so it's easy to put on your Sunday best and do that thing, and, or, and then when you get out of here, remain as you were, as though nothing has ever happened. But in Christianity, what you are at home, the kind of daddy you are as your kids know you, the kind of mother you are as your children know you, the kind of children you are and young people you are as your parents know you, that's who you really are. If I want to know if you're saved, I won't ask you, I'll ask your friends. If I want to know if you're an honest 
law-abiding person, I'll ask your friends. If I want to ask if you're a sincere, non-hypocritical person, I'll ask your friends because they know if you are or if you aren't. And nobody knows you better. Nobody knows me better than my wife, other than God. But nobody can tell more about you, the kind of person you really are, than the people you live with at home. And fact of it is, we should be the same way in this building as we are at home. We should be the same way. Our children shouldn't see any difference in the way we act in church or at home. And what if we came to church, youngsters, what if we acted in this room the way we act at home? It'd be rough, wouldn't it? So we are trying to realize that God wants us to realize that the home is where we demonstrate who we really are and the kind of people we really are gonna be. If we really got saved on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night in a church, it's got to show up at home. Your wife has to know, or your husband, your parents have to know something good has really happened to my son, wife, daughter, mother, dad. I see a change in them. The effect that God is having on their life is making them different than they've ever been before. It's going to take some adjustment to get used to that, but, but we're going to do that. We said this in Genesis chapter 2. He said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife. And said, and they shall cleave to one another, and the two shall be made one. I said this last time about cleaving. The word cleave, the Hebrew word cleave, is like a glue, an adherence, something that sticks together. When God says two people shall cleave each other, it's not like he wrapped tape around them. Because that's the modern version. And these two shall be taped together until they don't like what they're doing. Then they break the tape and start over somebody else. They glue together. It's a commitment you make to each other. And don't you do this in marriage? When you stand in front of the preacher or wherever, do you not take an oath or make a vow? I will. I will. I will love you, she says. I will love you till death do us part. He says, I will love you forever. And they hold hands, they exchange rings as a symbol for everybody to see that I have made a covenant with a man before God. I'm going to live this way and I'm going to love this guy, I'm going to love this woman. We're going to establish a home and we're going to walk with the Lord. That's what a marriage vow is and that's what it should lead to and that's what it's supposed to mean. Not that it does today, but that's what it's supposed to mean. But it's not easy. You see, during courtship, everything's looking good. Man, he's always dressed right. Well, he used to say he's always shaving, but anymore, my generation, I guess, shave. We knew what razors were. Today, they don't seem to have many razors, but he used to be always clean shaven and always dressed up nice and always on time. He wanted to take you out and entertain his girlfriend or his wife-to-be, and she was always trying to look good so that when he saw her, he wouldn't want to look at anybody else. And, oh, it was so wonderful. Then they get married. And then the cleaving and the gluing process begins. And it doesn't take any married couple. How many of you have been married for at least a year? How many of you know issues do abound? None of you. Praise the Lord. But things come up. Attitudes. Things lying inside of me that I didn't know was a problem. My wife brought it out of me. And things in her that I didn't know she was like that. I said one simple word. And man, it was like, for three days. 
I didn't know she was like that. She didn't act like that when we were courting. Well, of course not. You wouldn't have come back around. But now, buddy, you got a ring on now. Now you're married. So you're ready to go. And you begin dealing with each other's life because you got two different people. Two different people come from her family, from your family. The man asked this girl to leave the only parents you've ever known, the only home you've ever had, generally. I want you to leave all of that. I want you to come and join yourself to me. And she says, where are we going to live? He says, I don't have a clue. We're just going to live on love. Right, right. That'll work until the bills pile up. Then, oh, man, it's tough after that. But here we go. He begins in the cleaving and the adjusting process. There's three areas I said last week. He got to adjust spiritually. You got to have same spiritual ideas and views. This is what you learn and things you talk about in the courtship time. What do you believe? Because the main thing that's going to keep us together is not love. It's God. Having something we can both trust in, rely on, and depend on and are committed to, we've got to have that or this marriage won't last long. If he doesn't like my religion or the church that I go to and he's hateful about the way he sees it and talks to me, we're going to have trouble in the other areas of our marriage. And the kids will listen to that and know that they can pick and choose about religion too. Spiritually got to be one. If on a church day, daddy says, let's just go ride around there. We have this nice day. Let's just go ride around it. And they go ride around or go shopping or go to some place. The kids know, you know, church ain't a big deal. It's what all the goody two-shoes do. We're supposed to do it. It's a socially right thing to do. But, man, I, it ain't like we ought to or have to. And so the kids are affected by every decision that we make as parents. You got to come together spiritually. You got to believe the same way, agree on the same things, come together in how you're going to discipline your children, how you're going to deal with your children, how you feel about this, how do you feel about that, what are we going to do if. You talk about that in courtship because you want to be on the same page. And then the second area is in the area of the soul, soulishness, the natural part, communication, talking, sharing, just sitting down and talking. Man, you know how much you talk when you were courting? You couldn't wait. I was in college, and I couldn't wait to get to the dorm. She couldn't wait for me to come to the dorm and pick her up. And we just had ratchet jaws all, you know, just just talking, talking, talking. Isn't it funny how if you get married, you don't know what to talk about anymore? Because a lot of times men don't talk. You know, who wants to talk about feelings and stuff like that? And so men tend to clam up and go somewhere else, and the women just want to talk about a lot of things. And, and it can create a problem because if you don't communicate, what happens? You don't love me anymore. I do too. You don't talk to me. Man, I don't talk about that stuff. I don't, all right, talk. She said, just forget it. You know, then you got that side thing. I know how it works. Not that that happens. <laughs> I mean, as old as I am, you know, you understand a lot of things better than you did when you were burr-headed and young and crazy. But things change because you've got to come together. You've got to communicate. And then the other area is the area of the physical, the body, affections, intimacy, and sex, and all of that goes with that. That's a vital part of it, too. If that's wrong, the other things will be wrong. And if the middle one is wrong, the other two will be wrong. These all three have to fit together. If a woman thinks she's just being used and not really loved, that'll get old in a hurry. 
If she's just somebody to come home to for a while, and then I'm going, that'll get old in a hurry because there's no affection in that. What you see going on today in society with all this running around and getting in bed with each other, there's no love in that, and it means nothing other than pleasure. That's all it is. But when you're married and you love somebody, that becomes a vital part of how you relate to your wife or your husband. It makes everything elevate to another level concerning your deepest feelings. Sometimes it doesn't have to be that. It's just the fact that you're there and you care. You're proving your love for this woman or this man in various ways. It just enriches a whole marriage. You eliminate these areas for the devil to come in there and dig around and separate two people. People get so used to fighting, they just grow up fighting. He won't even come home, and she just yaps about it. Now, I grew up in a home like that. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents divorced. They finally got together again. They never really loved each other, I don't think. It's just this constant turmoil about what the other one did or didn't do. Of course, I was in the middle of it, and I heard all about it, and that's why one of the reasons I think I developed an attitude growing up, that I'll never let a woman tell me what to do. Amen. And I find out if she wants to do that when I'm dating her, she tries to tell me what to do. Bye-bye. But then after I got saved, I, I never married somebody that ever tried to tell me what to do. But it's the more I studied the Bible, the more I began to learn things. As God began to open our eyes and see things, I began to see some really harshness, some unnecessary behavior as a married man, as a Christian man. doesn't belong in there. And I had to deal with that. And I've learned a few things about it. Now, in Genesis 3, we got a man and woman created. They're told to cleave together and come together and develop a relationship so that when it's the way it should be and children are brought into that family, they can be citizens for God's kingdom. You can make godly seed. Now, here's what happened, though, in Genesis chapter 2. We were there and we ended there last week. God told Adam, verse 17 of chapter do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, this was made to Adam. I don't think Eve was made yet. I think Adam was alone. Because right after this, he brought forth all the animals. And Adam gave names to all the animals and all the beasts. And then it says, but there was not found for Adam a suitable helpmate. Adam could not relate to animals as far as a helper. So God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. It took his rib, made a woman, brought her to him, and he said, this is it. This is woman. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And there they are. Adam now has responsibility, as you look all the rest of Scripture, Adam now has responsibility of the one to whom the law was given, one law, one law, verse 17 of chapter 2. No Moses here, no Ten Commandments, just one single law. And that single law is do not eat of the fruit of that tree. You do anything else you want, and you can't do anything else wrong. There is no way you can do anything wrong because there's no law. Paul writes in Romans, where there is no law, there's no sin. How could you break a law when there isn't one? If there were no speed limit signs on the highway, you could drive as fast as you want to. Nobody could give you a ticket because there's no such thing as breaking the law. But when you put a sign there, you have an opportunity now to sin or transgress or break a law. 
And that's why when you're going 70 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour zone, you're made like this. You look at your speedometer, it says 70, the sign says 65, and then you naturally look in your mirror. Because, well, you know you're wrong. Nobody has to teach you that you're wrong. Remember in Romans chapter 1, he's talking about there are people in the world to whom the law was never given. Like he gave the law to the Israelites. But he said all the rest of the world inherently knows right from wrong. You take your children. I've had seven of them, so I know this. You take children. Before they're old enough to really understand legalism or legal laws that you make, they know when they're wrong. They drop something, it breaks, so what do they do? They take something they're not supposed to get. Don't you eat that cookie until you eat your food. So you're talking to somebody, you look over, there's a big bite out of that cookie. And you look at that child and say, did you eat that cookie? Or today, did you eat that cookie? I'm going to smack you. But no, did you eat that cookie? And they're going, and they're lying like a dog. They know they're lying. That's why they have that look. They inherently, without you teaching them right and wrong, they inherently know it. People in the world without ever reading one verse in the Bible, they know that if you're a so-called Christian, there's a way you're supposed to live and you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal, you're good to your wife, you're good to your parents, you pay your bills, you're not a rank heathen in the community. You don't do that because without knowing anything about the Bible, they know you're supposed to live like that and you're not supposed to do this other stuff. People who never darken a church store can tell you, yeah, they talk about all that religious stuff and why well, you couldn't trust them people as far as you could throw them. They know that without study. That's natural. That's just a natural thing. You break the speed limit, you naturally know you deserve punishment. That's what the word guilt means. You deserve punishment. How many times in our lives, all of us in here, have we done things we shouldn't do? We knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. I didn't have to tell me I was wrong. I knew it, and I'd go home at night, and you'd think, oh, man, you just knew you were wrong. You knew what you did was wrong. You knew what you said, how you said it. When you told a lie, your boss said, tell him I'm not here. And you said, he ain't here. You know you lied. And it really does bother you on the inside. Did you all know that Jesus bore your guilt also? Guilt is a weight that suppresses, oppresses, and depresses people. And there's a lot of people in mental institutions whose main problem is guilt. They never had a way to get rid of it. Didn't know what to do with it. Nobody ever taught them. No parents ever trained them. They just let them go. They messed up here. They messed up there. They drank that, smoked that. Oh, and they didn't know what to do with it. So you drink more and you smoke more. If you do enough drugs, you can alter your mind. You're no longer that guilty person. Hey, you're cool now. You're somebody else. If you're a shy person and you do a lot of speed, you can't shut up. But, you know, you like it because now you're like everybody else. And yet you know you're wrong. God made us this way. 
It's a real danger when you can keep doing wrong and it no longer bothers you because that's what the Bible calls searing your conscience. When you're no longer bothered about your speech and your lifestyle and your choices, you're in trouble. There's a deadly verse in the Bible. Nobody likes to talk about it. Nobody likes to preach about it. It's a verse that says, For this cause shall God give them up to their vile passions. God gives you up. You know what happens to you if God gives you up? He no longer deals with you. He leaves you alone. And your day comes without regard for God until that moment. And then it's the other life. And there's no change. Can't do anything about it. But he told Adam, don't eat of that fruit. Adam's supposed to say, now Eve, the law was given to me. You were from me, and I'm responsible for you. Now, don't eat of this tree. This was his responsibility, to be her head, to tell her not to eat of this tree. And then here came the devil in chapter 3 now. Here came the devil. And the first thing he said in verse 1 was, Hath God said, Yea, hath God said said, Eve, do you really think, do you really, really believe if you eat of that tree, you'll die? This is where in this world, the devil is the author of logic and reason and seduction, mental seduction to try to twist and distort things from truth to something. You're not too sure if it's true or not. I mean, come on, after all. I mean, mean, you really think you're going to die? You're going to die because you ate something good, and when God made the world, he said, all things are good, and now you're going to eat something good, and you're going to die? Eve, come on, girl. You're not going to die. I'll tell you what it is. God knows if you eat that tree, you'll be like him, and he don't want any competition. Now, let me ask you something. Why would she listen to that? Don't take me wrong now. Don't y'all get up and walk out on this. God made women to listen to things like that, more so than not always, 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 always exceptions. But she's made to listen to more detail than men do. You ever hear a man tell a story about where he went, what he saw, and his wife was with him? Oh, yeah, man, we were driving down the road, and this car went out and crashed. And the wife said, well, we were driving down the road having a good time. The radio was on. We were talking about a program owner. This guy named so-and-so was talking about one of the issues over somewhere across the world. We were just driving along, just looking around, commenting about this and that. And then we saw a car going this way. And, oh, we were so scared. We got talking, oh, the blood of Jesus went off. And we looked over there. Next thing you know, the car had stopped. People were stopping. All the road. They just keep going. They just keep going. I've called home, and she knows it's true, and I'll tell her myself, I've called home before many of my journeys through the years. And how's it going? Fine. How's the meetings going? Good. Very many people come, I guess. Everything, yeah, everything's good. Everything good at home? Oh, yeah. About little socks here and a little something there, and then what a cute little thing was said, and spilt the milk, and did this, and said that, and they started singing a little Jesus. They, oh, and it was so you should have been a little, 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 little. How you doing, Tom? Fine. Anything new going on? No. You got anything else to say? Probably not. No. 
I remember one time I came home, I'd been talking to people all day long at church, counseling things and difficult things and this and dealing with things. And how was your day today? Oh, I was busy. Well, who all did you talk to? Oh, you know, just because I don't tell her everything goes on. This isn't her problem. I mean, what we do here isn't her burden. It's mine. So I just said, uh, you know, just, well, who, I mean, what did I do? That's what it sounds like to me. I think, well, uh, uh, finally she asked me the question, and I said, I have talked all day long to people. I don't want to come home and talk again. Now, I said it better than that. Don't go on me. Yeah, I said it a little bit better than that. And then you get this look back from your wife that's been changing diapers and got to go potty and orange juice. And all day long, that's been her crowd to talk to. And I say, I've talked to people. I don't want to talk anymore. You know, when women would throw their crap. Oh, being the typical sensitive man that I am and such a <laughs> loving husband, I said, I said, now what? <laughs> Nothing. But I have done better a little bit through the years, and I've done better than that. But, but there's this thing about the way women are made. And I'm glad she's not like a man. Can you imagine two people just grunting all the <laughs> Because it's a woman's sensitivity to detail that leads her to often honor and encourage her husband. And I'll guarantee you, men need that too. They don't realize they need that until they start getting such encouragement and kindness from their wife. And it just makes that relationship better. Now, if she's spoiled rotten, and she's always, well, I, my name is Jimmy Gimme. And, you know, she never contributes. You know, sometimes you contribute even though you're not getting anything back. How many of you know that when you love the Lord, you're not submitting to your husband because he deserves it, but because God wants you to? And she could look at that man, though she wouldn't tell him, and say, if it wasn't for God, you'd be so alone. You'd be so hungry and misfed. Your clothes would be dirty, you'd stink if it wasn't for God, because I wouldn't fool with you. But because she loves the Lord more than she loves you, and she's willing to honor God with her life as she reads it and learns it, she begins to find favor with God and brings favor in the home. Remember in 1 Corinthians 7, it says your children are sanctified by a believing wife? Yeah, Amen. It's just the way that God does things. And it's easier a lot of times for women to get a hold of spiritual things sooner than men. I do think they're somewhat easier to deceive generally than men are. Like in this situation here, Eve, why didn't he go to Adam? He said, well, it said that Adam was with her whenever he sinned. Didn't it say that whenever she ate that fruit that she gave it to Adam, her husband, with her in verse 6? This part here is just my own personal opinion. I do not believe, and I'm standing to be corrected, that when the devil came up to tempt Eve, that Adam was standing right there beside her. Because if so, then Adam 
was in transgression before anything happened because he said nothing. But I do believe that he tempted Eve and she began to consider, you know, the reason and the logic about, well, you know, how could I die? If, what would Adam do? I know he's got more ribs, but I mean, what would he do if I died? And how in the world could something be so good and we eat of it or partake of it and it be bad and kill us? Now, here's what I think. Adam. I think she took the tree after this. She thought about it, considered it. It made sense. She looked at it. It was good to look at. And so she took a bite of it. <laughs> Nothing changed. She didn't die. When she ate that fruit, maybe she was waiting for some awful thing to happen. Whatever die meant, nothing had ever died. Nothing in creation had ever died. So how would she know what death was? But he said, you'll die if you eat this. And whatever die is, I didn't die. I think she might have said to Adam, Adam, this is really good. And he might have said, hey. And she said, I, I ate it, but look, I didn't die. And he ate the fruit. Maybe he got to thinking, maybe what I heard God say was not interpreted, because people use that today as an excuse for not doing what you're supposed to do. Well, I think that's your interpretation. I think that's what the devil told her. Well, you know, I think Adam was real religious about this, maybe a little bit legalistic, and so I don't think God's going to kill you. She ate the fruit, and she didn't die. He ate the fruit, and he didn't die. But look at verse 7. The eyes of them both were open. I thought they already were. No, spiritually. Sure, they were biologically and naturally their eyes were open. But in verse 7, the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked. And for the first time ever, there was shame and embarrassment. Oops. Uh, we're not, this is not right. We should be clothed. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden, the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. Now there's fear. We got shame, guilt, fear, embarrassment. Never happened before. And it began in a marriage relationship. That's where it all started. And the Lord God called him and said, Adam, where are you? And he said, well, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was embarrassed and ashamed to be in your presence like this. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And now here's the way the judgment sequence began. And the man said, it's that woman you gave me. Those are not the exact words, but it does say, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. It's her fault. So the Lord says to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, it was the devil that made me do it. It was the serpent who beguiled me, and I did eat. So, verse 14, and the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. 
You see, from a woman shall come forth Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Anyway, that's for another sermon, another time. And then verse 16, unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow or pain and anguish, you shall bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, there's three things that happened because of sin. This is the curse that was laid upon the woman. He said, one, in childbearing, you're going to have pain and difficulty. It'll be anguish because it originally wasn't meant to be that way. And secondly, he said, thy desire shall be to thy husband. Now, whatever aspirations you might have to go and do and be, he said, your desire shall be to your husband. Have you know I didn't write this? And then thirdly, he said, and he shall rule over thee. You talk about politically incorrect today. You talk about a march and a who knows what else today over something like this. But this is what God said. Pain and difficulty in childbearing. Your husband is to rule over you. And he said, not only that, but your desire shall be to your husband. To the man, he said this. Verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. Now stop. Because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife rather than what? Than God. Did God speak and say, thou shalt not do one thing? Well, then why did you not listen and live by what God said? Why did you let her talk you into doing that? That's what God said. He said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake in sorrow. That's toil and hardship, wearisomeness. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return to the ground. For out of it thou was taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Those were the curses that were given to man and the woman and to the serpent. He already said you'll crawl on your belly for the rest of your life. Now all of this began because of what happened in the home. Now, it wasn't Eve's transgression that God called the first sin. Turn to Romans 5. What a good study Romans 5 is about sin and forgiveness. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. I hate to butt in on such a noble chapter, but we will. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Then he goes on to say, everybody after Adam died, not because they did what Adam did, but because the nature of death 
is lodged in them. No, Adam and Eve did not just fall over dead, but the death process began. And it just continues day after day. They might have lived 900 years. It might have taken them that long to die. They were made perfect. But they begin to die. One day they probably notice they're getting older after, you know, four or 500 years. You know, I think we're aging. We're getting older. By that time, they would have had three or 400 children or 1,000 anyway, and they would have had another two or 3,000. But as they begin to grow older, they begin to realize that there was pain and sorrow and that everything didn't just go right for them. You had to fight the elements and you had to fight this. All nature, even today, Romans 8 says, all nature today groans until it's delivered of this corruption. It's just the curse that came on this earth and came on the ground and on the beings that God created because of sin. Sin was simply disobedience to something God said, not doing it God's way. That's much too trivial for us to make a big deal out of, but to God, it was the beginning of the death of the human race. Every funeral you go to of the various ways that people die, every funeral is a reminder of what sin has done. It's death and all the tragedies that go with life and all the diseases and the sicknesses, all the things that the devil has found himself free to do because of sin. And the Bible says through one man, in verse 12, therefore by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense, that would be Adam's sin, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. Where do we get righteousness? It was given to us in Christ. He broke the curse, didn't he? You say, well, then why do we continue to live? And so what the last enemy that is going to be defeated is death. So death is going to be around until it's over, and the last enemy that will be defeated is death itself. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, that's Christ, shall many be made righteous. Remember that verse in 623, the wages of sin is death. You know why we all must die? Not just because it is appointed unto us once to die. There's a day we're going to die. But you know why we are born into this world dying? Because of sin. And from the day you were born, the devil, whoever you are, whatever age you are, whatever demeanor, you were taught that sin is not a big deal. You're not the only one. Everybody does. So after all, and yet sin is the one single thing that one just attitude of indifference to God. It's the one thing that causes God. Well, Isaiah 59 too, your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God that he will not hear. Will not hear. That's how big a deal sin is. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him in his sin. Now, I've said all of that to say this. This is what came out of the first marriage. And it's affected everybody in this room. In fact, in the restoration of all things and bringing us back into divine order, one of the things that God will concentrate on the hardest in the church is homes, marriages. As I said, we came in here tonight. Every home in here brought something. I can say this after 29 years later. It's not easier to preach in here than it used to be. It's harder now. 
It's more difficult to preach here, teach or speak here than it used to be. I don't know what's happened. I have ideas, opinions, but things have changed. There's not as much enthusiasm as there once was. Something has affected that. There's not as much earnestness as there once was. Something has affected that. We've gotten involved in a whole lot of things that seem to have more weight than our greatest need, and that's Christ. And when these things begin to lay on the family and they suppress and they hold everything down, it's not easy to get the word out. It's not hard to stand up here and speak, though sometimes you know it's not going anywhere, or at least you don't think it is. But all this began in the home. Let me tell you about six aspects of the fall, six things that happened when sin came. It is disunity or disorder. Adam and Eve simply were not on the same page. When sin comes into a home, these kind of things will happen. It's not a big deal to work it out or to make it right. It just becomes less and different than God shows it and the way God wants it to be. Another thing is doubt. We find ourselves sitting in church as a result of this sin. Is that really what that means? Did God really say that? Is that the way we're supposed to understand it? Do we have to live that far along? I mean, isn't that a little bit too strict? Isn't that a little bit too narrow? Nobody can really live this life, can they? And so you begin to listen to things like that. You begin to doubt because that's one of the effects of sin, which leads to, thirdly, deception. Deception is seen in the choices that we make. We've been deceived. If we weren't deceived, we wouldn't make some of the choices that we have made, but that's what deception does. And deception is accompanied by disobedience. We sinned. We didn't die either, did we? Little Sunday school kid hears about sin. They go out and they sin. They didn't die like Eve. So they begin to think, well, I wonder what death means because I didn't die. I didn't get sick. I didn't have an accident. The roof didn't fall in on me. I know I don't live the way I'm supposed to live, but I didn't die. So we begin to take the word of God for granted. We begin to take all the right, holy, and pure things that God We take it for granted. Oh, that's a good thing. We're glad for you. But, you know, I ain't, I ain't ready for that. I ain't into that. And so we get into our hearts this thing about disobedience. That leads to the division, not only between God and you, but us and others. Has there ever been a generation or an age like this one that passes the buck so much? Everybody's a victim today. Have you noticed? Everybody's a victim. Well, you know, my parents, they weren't happily married and I was influenced this way and I saw this and I saw that and nobody, I'm just, you know, I can't help the way I am. You can't. Poor God. He's helpless to change your life, isn't he? Or maybe you just don't want to change. Well, I came here and everything in my life was backwards. That's why he brought you here. That's why I brought you here. Didn't Jesus say, come to me, all you that are weary and what? Heavy laden? 
That's all the junk that you've been blaming for your life. If I didn't have all this stuff hanging on me, I wouldn't be like a, yeah, you would. I don't care what you had on your life. I didn't have it easy either. Some of you didn't either. I didn't see love in a marriage between two people and I got married. I didn't know how to do it either. I could blame my parents. I could blame their parents. Maybe I had a great grandpa who was a bad man. Or I could just say, what I am, I am. What I'm bringing in this place, I'm bringing in this place. I ain't proud of none of it. I want to get rid of all of it. And I really want God to open my eyes to show me how to do this. And if I can't do anything, I ask God to somehow have mercy on my life and get this junk off me. Because I got nobody to blame for my sin but me. When I drank that stuff the other night, nobody grabbed me, yanked my jaw back, and stuck a bottle in there and made me swallow. Mm -mm. Nobody, when you put that needle in your arm, nobody made you do that. You did it because you wanted to. How many times have you heard that everybody in this room, you are tonight what you are by the choices you have made? You chose to be like you are. I'm 28 years old. I chose to be what I hope I'm becoming. It's taken a long time because I was a hard hit, I guess. But nobody can make me do this. Nobody can make me stand here. Nobody can make me do anything. I must be willing. And when you take that away, you get this division. You get to where you don't really care about the other person. And then, of course, the other thing that happened, sixthly, is death. We're all dying, and we know it. The worst heathen in the world is a dying man or dying woman. They know it. They know it. You don't have to tell them they're dying. They all know they're dying. Nobody's ever lived forever except Jesus Christ. They're not even sure that's true. I heard about that, but I don't know about that. What about in the church? How did this fall affect those of us in the home? How about disorder, disunity? Is there such a thing as a Christian home in which two parents, a man and his wife, are a couple that don't get along with each other? Have you ever heard of that in your whole life, that two people are married and don't get along? It happens. They're not together. They come to church. She does what she does. She tolerates him as much as she's going to. He tolerates her somewhat because you've got to look good in church. You don't want people talking but you're not really in harmony with each other. He doesn't really love her. He lives with her. She doesn't really love him. She lives with him. There's an advantage in this social world to having such an arrangement. You get tax breaks, you got somebody to talk to when you need to talk to somebody, you might go somewhere. It's not like you're empty, but there's no love. Because the devil, long, long time ago, he came in and said to Eve, hath God said? And maybe to Adam, maybe that's not what he meant. So we don't get along either. What about in the home? How about doubt? You reckon doubt ever affects a marriage? Has there ever been a man doubt his wife's sincerity? Has there ever been a woman ever doubt her husband's sincerity? What if a man got really born again? I mean, his life really changed. He's not perfect, but he's got something he never had before. 
And him and his wife have existed together, and she hasn't really respected him. He didn't care if she did or not. They just kind of lived together. My parents did that. They just lived together. And one night, one day, God touches a heart. Or let's say he's already a professing Christian, but one day there was that divine moment when God made contact with this man. And he said, I want you to turn around or I'm going to judge you. He's never had it like that in his life. Holy fear came upon him. He turned, oh, God, I don't know what to do. I want you to go home and tell your wife what happened. Now, why doesn't he? How hard is it to do? How hard would that be to do in the average home in the church? If he goes to her and he says, whatever your name is, wife, just call her wife, woman. <laughs> woman. She goes, what? What? And he's thinking, why waste your time? She ain't going to listen to this. But he says, no, I think if I'll take the first step here, I believe God will get in the rest of them. So he says, I think God made contact with my heart today. And I want you to know that I have not been living the kind of life at home and in front of you that I'm supposed to. I know I should. I know I haven't been. I've been a real spiritual dog. I've been mad and angry. I'm frustrated. I'm stressed out. I don't always want to come home. I'm not even sure I even love you. I did once, and I think we, we, need, to, we need to get back to the if this moment came, you know why he wouldn't have that brief moment with his wife? Because she wouldn't believe him. Oh, yeah. Now, were well, you on a religious roll now? Of course, that's designed to take all the air out of you. That will take the air out of a man to doubt his honest intentions. Makes him kind of an ugly something. But it's different now. God's involved here. So he says, well, I know you're angry. I just want you to know I'm really going to try to live right. With your help or without it, I just want to live right. How many of you know, though, if he really does, pretty soon she'll get it? She'll get it. She'll start seeing, maybe. You know, when we were courting and young, it was so much fun, and then something happened. I'll tell you what happened. Kids, they grew up. But anyway, back to this. And he said, uh, boy, I hope this is right. Because her yearning, too, is to have this relationship. A good, wholesome, honest, no holes barred wide-open, nothing-hidden relationship with the man that she has agreed to live the rest of her life with. She really wants that. She may be bitter, maybe a root of bitterness. She may have been mistreated or grew up mis. I don't know what it is, but... Boy, here comes this moment when God says, I want you to quit doubting each other. Because that's what happened on the fall. And he begins trying and things begin to change. Things begin to change. They begin to be different than they used to be. Deception. Deception comes when two people are members of churches. They're religious people. 
but they believe their view of things are as good as anybody else's. Well, that ain't how I see it. Well, us Baptists see it this way. Well, us Methodists see it. Well, you Pentecostals are nuts anyway, so you all see it wrong. It's like any way that I'm sincere about has to be right. Well, that's ignorant. You can be sincerely wrong and be sincere, and you're wrong. But this is what sin does. It makes you think you're the one. And then you get disobedience in a home. Look at what happens in homes because of disobedience. A natural man's great weakness is his excuse-making before God that he can't do it. Or a woman, I'm not ready, I just can't do it. Because her past, the devil throws that flashback up to both of us and says, look how ornery you are. Boy, I've seen this thing. Look how bad you look. look here's college. Oh, t- oh, God. You know what? He can say, I've been forgiven of all of that. That's all under the blood. But look how easy you feel. Look how weak you are. Look how indifferent. Look at, look at, look at, look at. And look at things in your past so that you lose all hope of tomorrow. It happens every day. Because that's the effect of sin. Thus, you bring division into the home. What's the great word for division? Divorce. How can this be? In Christian so-called marriages, Christian marriages, half of them end up in divorce. Actually, more than half. One out of every two people that are so in love and are so planning to do this and getting ready. Oh! Some of them in less than five years are so fed up with each other, they can't wait to get rid of each other. Why? Because of sin. It's because of sin. That's what happens. And again, death. You're just a walking dead man. You got no life in you. The atmosphere of sin and its effect at home is nothing more than a dead place. Just like when you go to church and the word of God is nothing more than a dead letter. Now you know it isn't dead, but it has no effect upon you because it's like a dead man hearing it. That's what sin does to us. That's why we shuffle our feet, put our hands in our pockets, and spiritually we just kick rocks. You know, we don't know what to do, but we don't want to listen to what to do. And when we do listen about what God wants us to do, we don't like it because he commands a change of your nature, of your whole life. You can't live the way you've been living. You can't do what you've been doing. None of that is in agreement with the Lord. You can't have favor or grace with God living like that. That's why when you come to church, you get this guilt. Because of sin. But what's the good thing about guilt? It leads to what? Repentance. You'll never get your life right with God until you have something to repent of. And when God singles any of us out to deal with us because of our sins, he calls it godly sorrow. You think, oh, God. I may not do it here, but when I get home, when I'm by myself and I can't get away from me, it's like, oh. Is there any hope for somebody like me? Yeah, there's a lot of hope for somebody like you. Well, I'm going to quit there tonight because I was going to go into the roles, and I'll begin there next week. We'll start with the man, the role of a man at home, his responsibility, his biblical role. 
what he's supposed to do, what it means, and then you can measure yourself to see how you're doing about that. Amen. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would minister to us, that you would affect us for good. You would bring conviction in our hearts about any area of our life. May I pray that these young folks here tonight will give ear to what you're saying, to measure very carefully the choices that they're going to make in their life, to make sure that they make good ones. You'll deliver us from oppression and mistakes and guilt and sorrow and despair and depression. You'll help us to see the good that you have for us and have courage to do it that way. I pray you'll bless every home in this church, every man and every woman, and all these young folks to give thought to who they are, what they're doing, and where they are. That everybody will have a moment in which we are visited and where we're challenged. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.